0: Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? I'm okay, Sean. How are you? Super, as always. Okay, so the premise of Broad Appeal is simple. We both love movies. We've both seen a lot of movies. We both love actresses. I've seen a lot of movies that Brian hasn't. Yeah, and vice versa. We both wanted to introduce films to each other that we really liked, or else, more importantly... We think we remember like...
1: We decided to focus on movies of the 1990s. Now, this totally made sense for me because uh, that was basically the decade that I was kind of coming into maturity and really maturity as a moviegoer, but... Why? Why did? Why, why do you like so many movies from the nineties, Sean?
0: Well, I was a child, Brian, at the time, so I think what happened was I saw some of these movies on television. They may have made an impact, or they had some kind of reverence in my life from seeing them on high shelves at video stores back in the day. All right. So we've yeah we picked a series of films, and let's get to the first one. So today's film is Basic Instinct, the film from 1992, directed by director Paul Verhoeven. Uh, Sean, are we sure it's Verhoeven? Uh find it Verhoeven?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it might be Verhoeven. Verhoeven. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Well, We'll just have to alternate when we talk about it. So, Brian, I have seen this film. That is correct. And you have not. That is correct as well. It's amazing, actually, that I have not seen this film. Um, you know, it kind of... I mean, I'm not going to disclose my age, but I'll say that I'm exactly the right sort of age to have seen this at some point.
0: And that I'm exactly the wrong age to have seen it when it came (laughs) out.
1: So, uh, it's hilarious then that this movie means a lot to you, and to me, I'm going to confess something, Sean. It's not just that I haven't seen Basic Instinct. I feel like at least at a certain time, I kind of actively avoided seeing this movie. I I can remember actually a a very particular incident of being over a friend's house when I must have been in middle school or high school or something. And, um, I don't think at my house, we had the kind of cable channels that showed basic instinct, but this friend, the smut channel, <laughs> you know, it might've been just HBO or something, but anyway, this friend did have such a channel and I can remember that basic instinct was on and maybe he'd already seen it. And he was like, Oh, you haven't seen this movie. And I can remember seeing, um, maybe five or six minutes of it and thinking, gosh, I don't really want to be watching this. And it it wasn't even just because of the sex, even though obviously it was famous for being sexually provocative. I think even at my impressionable age, I had this notion that it was really politically incorrect as well and kind of something that was, that was bad all around. Badly made, um, bad in terms of its morals, bad in terms of its representation of women, um, homosexuals. So, you know, maybe I've internalized that and that's what's kept me from seeing it for all these years.
0: See, where I had the complete opposite reaction, because when I turned 18, it wasn't that I finally could drink or that I could vote or smoke or get a driving license because I still haven't got one of those. But for me, it was about seeing an adult film made for adults,
1: so, are you saying that on your 18th birthday, you rushed to your local Irish video store and got Basic Instinct? Is that what you're telling me?
0: Actually, it was age 19 in a second-hand uh, shop in Cork, <laughs> Okay. where I first got Basic Instinct. <laughs> okay. So,
1: um, you know, Basic Instinct to me, when I think of it, I think of that famous scene, of course, Sharon Stone. Um, we all have seen her in that white dress, and I guess like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You, I guess what I'm saying is, to the degree that I kind of am ready, even now, to acknowledge that the movie is iconic, that scene became iconic instantaneously. You know, I actually the, the other day because I was uh, knowing that we were getting ready. Brian, to we're talking this, very
0: abstract terms here. What exactly are you talking about? What do you mean? What scene?
1: The scene where Sharon Stone crosses and uncrosses her legs.
0: Oh, yes. Now I remember.
1: Yeah, okay. In the white dress in the interrogation room. That scene. Um, You know, you have to hand it to Paul Verhoeven. uh, Whether we consider him an auteur or a hack, or I don't know what we consider him. He made a scene that instantaneously, upon its release, became iconic. and, And parodied the world over. Parodied the world over... You know, and and probably something. I mean, you know, this movie made Sharon Stone's career. I think we all know that. But it's quite a first, you know, um, entree into the world to be forever associated with showing off your vagina to people. You know, I mean, I, I was just I was just about to say I I looked up some Sharon Stone stuff before we recorded this, and I came across her. Saturday Night Live opening monologue. Um, I guess it was around the same time that Basic Instinct was released. And she comes out and she's in this white dress and she sits in a chair and lights up a cigarette and basically does a parody of that scene. It's as if this is what everyone thought Sharon Stone was good for. And I mean, even I am ready and prepared to admit from my limited experience of Sharon Stone that she is much more than that scene and she's much more than Basic Instinct.
0: Well, let's just like... Take our eyes away from her vagina for a minute. Okay. And I'm going to ask you, like, in bullet points, you know, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you think of the film basically apart things apart from that?
1: Honestly? Yeah. Okay. Again, having, you know, having only known the zeitgeist, not ever seeing the movie, I know it's about a murder investigation. It involves an ice pick. It involves a kind of duplicitous bisexual suspect played by Sharon Stone um it has michael douglas sort of yet again representing the entirety of heterosexual manhood you know sort of
0: short short manhood <laughs> is he short uh, you'll you'll see
1: oh okay i don't know what that means but basically you know yet again being threatened by some you know man eating woman i don't know i i'm i'm prepared to find it an enjoyable film noir but i'm also prepared for it to have a little bit of a reaction like you and I had when we went to see Gone Girl earlier this year.
0: What? So I'm going to be turned on by the film where you're going to be incredibly uh horrified by it. I, I
1: okay, I wasn't horrified by Gone Girl. Well,
0: and I wasn't entirely turned on by Gone Girl. Let's just uh put that as a disclaimer.
1: I think the thing is, well, I don't know, with Gone Girl and my suspicion is with this film before seeing it, um I really appreciated the craft of that movie. Um I think David Fincher's an amazing director. He's obviously in that film making homages to Hitchcock. I enjoyed Rosamund Pike. I enjoyed so many elements of it. But I just found it really hard to get beyond just this deeply misogynistic uh, representation of this character in Gone Girl. And, you know, I'm aware that Basic Instinct was protested by feminists. It was protested by queer nation at the time. So... I don't know. It's gonna it's gonna take a lot of craft and a lot of entertainment for me to, to to overcome some of this. What essentially seems like male titillation of like a, a sort of like soft movie that's sort of about killer lesbians. That's that's my prejudice going into this.
0: Okay, well let's let's think of the movie in kind of two ways. All right, mm-hmm. we can think of it as a neo noir, or you can think about it as high class trash. And I think. Um, I mean, I don't know which feeling is going to prevail more when I watch it. Um, but this was really a star-making vehicle for Sharon Stone, we know, because before this, she'd worked with Paul Verhoeven in, in Total Recall, mm-hmm. uh, playing Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife, who, um, upon getting shot in the head, is told to consider that a divorce.
1: Yeah, and I mean, look, I've got nothing against Sharon Stone. I actually, I'm not sure if I've seen a Sharon Stone movie. I have seen Casino. I have very little memory of it. But to me, I have always had a soft spot for Sharon Stone, and I will tell you why. The woman, I think, embodies a kind of old-school Hollywood glamour that not a lot of people at the in the 90s or even today did. And to me... Like that, it's never more true than than in the years in the mid '90s when she would come out on the Academy Awards to present
0: what what award makeup perhaps no
1: makeup maybe or costume design and she just reads those texts with full commitment because you know sometimes celebrities come out and they just kind of toss off those she can she can read
0: copy till the cows come home yeah
1: I mean Sharon Stone. I think she's fully committed. She knows what her assets are. She knows what her range is. And she's gorgeous. She's beautiful. You know, to me, she she would have fit in equally well in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 90s when she was doing her work. She is a movie star. I will give her that. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how she places in the kind of femme fatale pantheon. You know, is she stratospherically amazing like barbara stanrick's uh Felix Dietrich, phyllis dietrichson in double indemnity or is she somewhere sort of more in the generic category uh, the
0: jury for me is still out okay so brian now this is a podcast about actresses there's there's two words that you're not saying to me and uh, i'm going to elicit them from you two
1: words or three words
0: uh, maybe three words one me. of them a compound word
1: uh Yes. <laughs> are you trying to get me to say triple horn? Triple horn. Yes. Jean Triplehorn. When
0: two horns are not enough.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah. Jean Triplehorn. I mean, I'm aware that she's the secondary female lead in this movie, supporting actress in this movie. I mean, Jean Triplehorn is just one of those people who I, I I can't tell you a lot of other things that she did. Well, she was in that Grey Gardens. Um, HBO one with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange as, does she play Jackie Kennedy? Yes, yeah, she does. She okay. does.
0: Um, I'm going to tell you in this film, she has brown hair. So she's the brunette. Uh, yes. How so, did you, yeah. Did you, so for contrast, so she's midge
1: in vertigo. Is that what we're saying?
0: Uh, oh, very nice. Very mm, nice uh, yeah. comparison there. Not that you know anything about her character in this film. You're no, gonna... I don't.
1: Also, wait, I have a question, Sean. One final thing about this before we kind of get into it. Um, isn't there a dispute about the ending? Wasn't it sort of recut or something like that? This is coming back to me.
0: Uh, I, I honestly don't know. Really? And um, I all I know is there's a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a scrap about what music to play at the very end. But oh, I mean, this film we can talk. We'll talk more about this in the second half.
1: Well, maybe we have to look into that because I have a memory that you know, because it's one of those things I've read about, even if I haven't seen the movie that there was some kind of flap about how it ended, and one ending kind of implied an answer that Verhoeven didn't want to imply, or something like that. And Maybe there was a the DVD released a director's cut or something? I don't know.
0: Well, I think the version we're going to watch now in a minute is the ultra-violent excessive one, which is the, the definitive edition. Okay,
1: great. Yeah. Well, so what do the um, people who are listening at home do? Do they pause now and watch the movie, or do they just... Keep listening to us. It's
0: entirely up to them. If you haven't seen Basic Instinct in a while, now is your chance to do it. If, like me, you have uh, treasured memories of it, I'd say just keep on listening.
1: Or if you just want to hear us yammering away, we are going to watch the movie now and we'll be back in a bit with our reactions.
0: See you later. Did you kill Mr. Boz, Mr. Tremel?
1: I'd have to be pretty stupid to write a book about killing and then kill somebody the way I described it in my book. I'd be announcing myself as the killer.
0: I'm not stupid. We know you're not stupid, Mr. Trammell. Maybe that's what you're counting on to get you off the hook. Writing the book gives you an alibi.
1: Yes, it does, doesn't
0: it? Welcome back to part two. We've just watched the film. For those of you who did not watch it, I'm going to give you a brief little synopsis of what happens. Michael Douglas plays Detective Nick Curran. He's a member of the San Francisco Police Department. And he's investigating the brutal killing of a rock star turned civic man called Johnny Boz. Johnny Boz is killed violently at the start of the film in an unusually rough uh, session of lovemaking with an ice pick.
1: Yes, and it's, it's worth noting that in that opening shot the blonde person who kills him, we cannot see the face. We
0: cannot see the face. We do know that it is a woman who kills Johnny Bob. Yes, because we can
1: see everything but the face. Like, quite titillating. Quite, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, So, Detective Nick Curran, who we find out pretty soon after, is a flawed man who is getting over serious um, alcohol and drug problems which have arisen from the accidental yet... I found. The
1: accidental tourist the, killing?
0: Accidental <laughs> tourist killing, very good. Uh, and he's undergoing strict psychoanalysis from the very intense Gene uh, Triplehorn. Yes, Dr.
1: Elizabeth Garner. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, here we already have a problem with the plot, right? Which is that, okay, he's, he's this troubled cop who's killed innocent civilians and seems to be an alcoholic and drug addict whose wife has committed suicide and internal affairs puts him to go to counseling very you know unpushy counseling from this psychologist who everyone on the police department seems to understand he's sleeping with and no one including her and him seems troubled by this
0: very and odd and it seems to be the most um, the most kind of torturous punishment is to go to psych You know, how many times in the film do you see a a superior officer shouting in his face saying, psych, 9am, Monday morning?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's also painted as this kind of, I mean... she makes Vera Farmiga in uh, The Departed look like, you know, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> you know, I mean, she just basically, she offers no psychological insight at all times. She just seems to want to sleep with him, basically. Yeah. And, and keeps lying for him to get him off, but we'll get back to her. Yeah, about we'll get back to it. So
0: that's, yeah. that is, in a sense, the plot of the film.
1: Boy, you didn't talk about Catherine Trammell. No,
0: no, she gets her She gets her own main section. Okay. You working on another book? Yes, I am. It must really be something, making stuff up all the time. Yeah, it teaches you to lie. How's that?
1: You make stuff up. It has to be believable. It's called suspension of disbelief.
0: I like that. Suspension of disbelief. So, how did the film look? What did you think? Was it silky? I mean we we open
1: on a kind of fractured blurry um, sort of abstract image of almost like a cracked mirror or cracked bits of ice.
0: Yeah, very good setup I must say. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean sure the film is shot professionally. It makes really good use of the hills of San Francisco, the California coast. Jerry Goldsmith's score is
0: very good. It has a yeah, memorable, yeah.
1: spooky, atmospheric you know, there's lots of callbacks to kind of classic mystery movies. You can't you can't fault how it
0: looks. So you'd say that it's intelligently directed.
1: I mean, yeah.
0: Okay, so I have you on record saying that. All right. <laughs> how do you feel about the screenplay? I
1: honestly, Sean, think this is one of the worst screenplays I've seen. And I you know, like you were asked seen heard. Like you were Calling it trash, like is it going to be enjoyable trash? I mean, Showgirls seems to me more fun than this movie. Didn't um, he also write Showgirls?
0: Yeah, Paul Verhoeven said that Basic Instinct opened up all the doors for him that Showgirls closed behind him.
1: Yeah, and that, and they're both written by Joe Eszterhas. Yeah, yeah.
0: So Brian, I just want to tell you two pieces of information. Oh okay? no, the screenplay was written in thirteen days, and a bidding war ended up in the film being bought from Joe Esther House for a record, then record $3 million.
1: I guess I can understand why it was considered a commercial property. It has all these hot topics of like blood and sex thrown together. Clearly by casting Michael Douglas, they're, they're kind of carrying on with the same kind of similar theme of sort of fatal attraction and the lesbian element makes it seem sort of up to date and current, but... I mean, line by line, it is absolutely predictable. There is zero subtext. Um, and plot-wise, I think there's a big difference in a murder mystery plot between red herrings and twists and just literally throwing in things for no reason. Com- to...
0: Complete disregard for story, really.
1: It was story or motivation, and just basically... I mean, for the last kind of third of the movie... You're supposed to be saying, "Oh, is it Gene Triplehorn the brunette or is it Sharon Stone the blonde?" And honestly, I mean, we just before we started recording, we tried to talk through both scenarios of who it was. We did the thing. And I don't really think either of them make
0: sense. Do you care if either of them kill? No, them? that's
1: the other thing. You and I wrote this down in my notes. You don't really care. And did you care about their relationship? Their developing relationship between Catherine Tramell and Nick Curran. Did it seem anything other than just a kind of sexual obsession or a plot device?
0: Well, I think we're supposed to see it in the sense that Nick is a person who kind of lives with a lack of control. And we see that in his own kind of working life. We we're told that he has killed civilians like four times in five years (laughs) which I think would get you sacked if that that was the case oh no they
1: just send you to uh, counselling with your girlfriend that's
0: okay whereas uh, Catherine Tramiel represents uh, kind of the mirror image of Nick yeah she's doing all the same things except that she is in control and it's the whole film kind of balances on this whole idea of Submission, domination, but like let's forget the plot for a minute, okay? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Let's get back to the whole reason we're here. We're here, and you know you can't deny that this film was very watchable, okay? Don't tell me that you were bored during this film. You kind of been bored. I was bored. At the were end. you? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't I,
1: bored. I was not bored at the beginning, but I was bored at the end. Well, okay,
0: but of course this film is held together by Sharon Stone. Yeah,
1: and I think it's hard to pin down exactly what it is about Sharon Stone that works here. Um, I would say she's beautiful to look at. She has a just kind of amazing poise, really, or something. I'm not sure that the material is really worthy of her screen charisma. I, I, I suspect there's a really great Sharon Stone performance that could... Still be given. Maybe casino was it. It didn't leave much of an impression on me. Well, Brian,
0: have you seen Catwoman by any chance? <laughs> well, I was thinking that you you know, Catherine Jamel tells us very early on what suspension of disbelief is supposed to be, and how we're not how we're supposed to like just accept everything we're given. And I think it's a whole part of the basic instincts modus operandi is to say believe this trash, believe it, believe it, believe it. And the way I see it, it's like if someone shines a really bright light in your face Uh-huh. and you have to do whatever it takes not to blink. And I think that's how she does this performance.
1: Control. It's all this kind of complete control that she's in. Like in that in the famous interrogation scene, she's just staring right back at them. And
0: that is a brilliant scene. Now, I find the, the scenes where she's supposed to be human harder to believe. Not because she couldn't act it that way, it's just that... I just didn't believe... I just don't believe Catherine Chamele has any, you know, sympathetic feelings. Maybe they're supposed to fake because... You mean later on when
1: she says things like, I don't want to get close to you because everyone who gets close to me dies. Yeah. That that kind of stuff. That kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about Saddled
0: with a Bad Character. Poor Jean Triplehorn. Poor Jean Triplehorn. I'm going to be honest, Brian. I haven't seen this film in about five years. Uh And I watched it through different eyes. I think the representation of women in this film is really quite gross, honestly. Because I, what I notice is that there's not a single woman in the film who's an equal to any male character. They're either completely dominant or completely submissive. And that Jean Triplehorn really represents an unfair portrayal of submission in this film. Right, I
1: mean, she's as we've already hinted, she's meant to be this police psychologist who's sort of counselling Michael Douglas. Yeah, but what do you think about that sex scene they had? Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Wordlessly, he just throws her against the wall, he throws her against a chair. I mean, you get the sense that he's acting out some kind of animal passion that was brought on by his his meeting Sharon Stone and not yet you know, yeah. sleeping with Sharon Stone, that he's sort of channeling this into... Subli- Sublimation, I yeah. think you call and it. He rips her blouse in half... And then she when it's all done, she says something like, You've never been like that before.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, like, I kind of found that a little bit hard to watch in some ways because she kinda of just rationalizes ra- like rationalizes the whole thing. I was watching it thinking, okay, now maybe we're supposed to think that they have some kind of prior situation thing going on that like maybe decided to do it. And then afterwards she says that line, and I was like, Oh man, you know? I mean, I think
1: the Catherine Nick, Michael Douglas, um, Sharon Stone dynamic is more interesting because it's a kind of who's on top sort of battle for control.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really really noticed for the first time, and I said it to you during the film, this sounds so small, but there's one scene where Catherine rubs Nick's ass from behind. And I thought to myself, what other films do women rub men's asses in it?
1: Yeah, so what's interesting is that's a kind of parallelism. Yeah, of course, it. yeah. yeah. Early up, earlier in the movie, in probably what was my favorite scene, just from a kind of arousing cinema, cinema you know, the, vi- visceral scene the in the nightclub. Scene. In the yeah. nightclub. She's wearing this amazing dress. Do you want a sidebar about the dress, Sean? No,
0: I don't like talking during films, really. But I had to turn to Brian and say, that is an amazing dress.
1: Yeah, so it's this kind of gold spangly number. Backless. Yeah, really goes down low on her back and is really short. She does look great. She look, it's an amazing dress. I mean, she's meant to be a sort of drug-addled, sweaty club-goer, <laughs> but her hair looks incredible. Yeah, and
0: Michael Douglas, it has to be uh, mentioned. It's wearing a V-neck jumper in this throbbing discotheque.
1: Yes, in a converted church, everybody. Yeah. So, to get back to the butts, uh, in that scene, Michael Douglas plays a much more sort of traditional hetero-aggressive role where he kind of pulls Sharon Stone in toward him, away from her butch lesbian lover and kind of... Barely butch. Yeah, fondles her buttocks. Yeah. And that's right before he ends up sleeping with her for the first time. Yeah. yeah. But then later in the film after they've gone through a lot of trials and tribulations, she's back at his apartment. He's much more troubled. And she comes up behind him and kisses him from behind. And then, as you said, there's a very prominent shot of her sort of stroking, grabbing his butt underneath his jeans. And so I guess maybe this is my problem with the movie. How much more interesting would this have been if it was actually playing with Psychology, kind of emasculation yeah. dynamic in an interesting way. Yeah, because it imagine was so kind this, of
0: one or the other, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Imagine this written by a feminist as opposed to written by an obvious horny straight man who gets <laughs> off on the idea of like an ice cold lesbian killer. You
0: know, I think Joe Esterhaus is a born-again Christian there. Oh, great. Yeah.
1: Well, tell me about what do you think Camille Paglia's uh version of this of this screenplay? Well, would I have be.
0: a feeling that Camille Paglia would enjoy this film, and that's neither uh <laughs> that's neither a uh, a praise of the film or a condoning of her either. I mean,
1: I don't know what to say about this film in comparison to traditional femme fatale because, um, I mean, how is lesbianism portrayed here? Maybe that's an interesting thing. It's sort of, I think, portrayed as almost a mental illness.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's portrayed
1: as a mental illness, which sort of, if you look at the two characters of... um, Gene Triplehorn's character and Sharon Stone's character. Because, spoiler alert, when they were undergrads at Berkeley, they had a... They lesed out. Yeah, they had, they had a lesbian relationship. And, um, you know, yeah. it's still unclear to me exactly who killed who and what, what happened. But Who cares? Basically, Gene Triplehorn seems to have been completely you know, deranged by the experience, ashamed by it, hides it. This lesbian affair at Berkeley between these two undergrad psychology students <laughs> seems to be the original sin. Oh, we've sin. all been there, Brian. <laughs> it's the original sin for which everything else emanates. So whatever happened with Jean Triplehorn, she married a guy and all this stuff, but this, this sin from her past of, of once being a lesbian seems to never have gotten away from her.
0: Okay, well, let's just break it down to undergraduate queer reading 101. Jean Triplehorn, has sex with a woman, is killed. Roxy, lesbian, killed. Catherine Tremel, bisexual, ends up with man, lives.
1: Even, uh... Former Academy Award winner Dorothy Malone, who has a nearly wordless performance as an older woman, who is also a murderer and...
0: I think we're not to believe that they're getting it on together as well, aren't we? Yeah,
1: they sort of wink at each other and then walk... I mean... And that was sexy. How old is Dorothy Malone at that point?
0: I think she was probably in her late 30s, perhaps. Come on, Sean, she's <laughs> 70. No, you know she's still alive, so... okay.
1: Anyway, basically, every woman in this movie is a murderer or deranged by their lesbian desire.
0: Except for the one woman who operates the records at, at Berkeley.
1: The woman who looked vaguely like Sandra Oh. Yeah, she, she
0: crosses her arms and speaks uh, firmly to Nick Corrin at one point.
1: What I want to say is, can I just sidebar here about the worst plot device of all time? Uh, the, so she right. says to him, so Catherine, <laughs> Turbell, Catherine Turbell says... I once had an affair when I was at Berkeley with a young undergraduate named Lisa Oberman, and then he's like, ah, Lisa Oberman. Yeah, he's like, ah, this will be the um, the key to it. So he goes and talks to the aforementioned administrative clerk at Berkeley, the, the even though he, even though he's been taken off the police force and he has no right to do any of this investigation. And she's like, nope, no one named Oberman here. And then he calls Captain Trembley and says, there's no name Oberman. She says. I didn't say Oberman. I said Hoberman. With Fuck a-
0: you, Nick, for following me around. I said Hoberman.
1: <laughs> I mean, what did we really need that detour to just because of, a, of a, a dropped H? No,
0: no, no, no. But we're supposed to be like, oh, no, it didn't mean anything. Catherine Tamela is just like having pillow talk. Oh, my God.
1: Um, Sean, let's get down to brass tacks. Okay. Because we've hinted at this. You had a previous reaction to basic instinct and you have had a reaction now.
0: Yeah. What has changed? Uh ooh, I think that I am less misogynistic than I used to be. <laughs> To be honest, I I find the portrayal of women in this film to be really, like, at times difficult to watch, really.
1: Well, I mean, and we had this debate, again, about Rosamund Pike's character Amazing Amy in Gone Girl. I hate to keep bringing back to that, but I think it's a useful comparison. Um, You didn't seem as troubled by that portrayal as I was at the time. How would you contrast Catherine Tramell from Amazing Amy? Um,
0: I think Amazing Amy has a motive, tenuous as it may be, mm-hmm. to do something. I think Catherine Tramell is painted as an out-and-out killer, loony killer. Well, loony she's a, she's a robot. She is, and that's the that's the thing. It's like don't give this woman any other agency apart from the agency to kill.
1: Yeah, you know? I mean, so. If this was 1992 and you were your current adult self and this movie was being released, would you be out on the streets with Queer Nation protesting it?
0: No, I'd probably be sharing links to incisive articles on Facebook.
1: Yes, 1992 though, basically. Oh, okay, so you'd be sending faxes or something. Um,
0: like. I would be using my two way pager <laughs> to <laughs> uh, rally people on the streets. <laughs> Fulham, Fulham High Street, because I'm sure everybody could afford to live in Fulham at the time. Um, we were talking about how the film looks as well. <laughs> Catherine Jamel goes into Michael Douglas's beige apartment she's wearing a beige suit he's wearing a beige suit he has beige furniture they drink whiskey which is oddly beige in the shot <laughs> and you just accept that because I think I think that there's an aesthetic about the film that it is as, at times as ridiculous as and as many holes in it as the plot does But I'm okay with that.
1: Slightly butch lesbian, Roxy, always wears black.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. Slightly more femme
1: lesbian, Catherine Trammell, always wears white.
0: And mousy, repressed lesbian, Beth, has big brown hair and wears brown. And also, is forced to show her shoulders and like nape. At like every every like opportunity, she's yeah, every time tousled in the hallway. Any
1: time Nick seems to touch her, her clothing seems to just miraculously fall off.
0: Um, I, here's a little plot hole that I found. Where does Catherine Jamel have time to get her hair done in so many different ways, or to write her book, or to write her book? <laughs> um, I'll tell you one thing about this film that I miss in I miss in contemporary cinema. I miss really thick hair. Okay. Yeah. I really do. Um,
1: Sean, what can we say about, about, uh, poor Sharon Stone here? She has an undeniable screen presence. Oh, yeah. She's very winning. Yeah. So, so what direction, if you were sitting down, you were Super Agent Sue Mengis, and...
0: Super Agent Sue Menges. And
1: you were sitting down with, um... With Sharon now, Sharon now in 2015, and Sharon was like, "Look, I'm bored. I'm sitting around my Malibu mansion." Well, oh, she loves- I
0: would say, didn't you have a fun time making Largo Winch Two in France? <laughs>
1: no, come on, honestly. What should Sharon Stone be trying to 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 do? What? Like- okay,
0: if I was Sharon Stone now, I think she's already started doing this. I would sit and wait for a really good supporting character role to appear or I will wait for a really really good female driven film which we're which thankfully we're getting a little bit more of these days um I really enjoyed her fading gigolo even though is she funny Uh, yeah she's funny she's really likable I think Sharon Stone is likable in all films she's probably the only thing in Catwoman that's tolerable like that if you think Basic Instinct is a bad film oh my god Catwoman is just offensive
1: well, ladies and gentlemen, is there anything else we have to say about Basic Instinct? Um,
0: I still kind of like it, a little bit. <laughs> Sean. I'm sorry, Brian.
1: It's okay, it's okay. Oh, can
0: I ask you one question before we finish, because now we're really rambling on. Yeah. I knew what the opening scene was, was like, I'd seen it before, and I kept my eyes wide open, but I really wanted to wince when that ice pick went through that guy's face. How did you feel about that?
1: No, it didn't seem real to me. Do you know why? Because the wig covering the person's face. I, You know what this movie was? Manipulation from start to finish. And I think that's what I resented. Like, we see the murder scene, but the wig is just so obviously just like hiding her face.
0: Wait, so basic instinct, love the dress, hate the wig, <laughs> watch it if you want. And I, Sharon
1: Stone we love you call us we want call to call us we've got
0: some ideas for you I can write a screenplay in 14 days we'll
1: brainstorm yeah that extra day is going to make all the difference yeah it is okay. okay
0: so it's goodbye from me yeah
1: and from me and we'll be back soon with another episode of Broad Appeal hopefully a movie that will that we like <laughs> uh, see ya okay thanks
0: for listening bye